0: Good evening. Uh, let me just introduce myself and then we can start the evening. Uh, my name is Naila Kabir and I'm a professor of gender and development at the Gender Institute. And I'm very glad to welcome all of you. and very glad to see such a full house. Uh, I think it indicates the importance of the topic and the importance of the speaker. So the talk is about gender inequality and power and it's the first public lecture of the Gender Institute and it's been organized by the Gender Institute, and there will be a reception afterwards, which, will be, which you are all invited to. It's an open reception. Events are recorded, and there will probably be a podcast available, so I would like to request you to either turn your mobiles off, or if you want to uh, Twitter, to tweet, use uh, your silence. Put it on silent. And um, the hashtag is... Where is it? Uh, LSE parents. Okay, so it is my very great pleasure to introduce Professor Diane Perrins, who joined LSE in 1994, who joined the Gender Institute as director in 2004, and who has been there since then. Um, I have known Diane off and on, and I understand we were at the first feminist economics conference back in the early 90s uh, when I actually didn't know her. But it was at that point that Diane started to get interested in working on gender and economics. Prior to that, she'd worked on many different issues, but since then, I think she has become uh, a a very important contributor to the field of feminist economics. If you look at Diane's uh, CV, you can actually track some of the key issues of our times, and she's, talked, she's written about financial crisis, she's written about masculinity, she's written about deregulation. And I noticed that in 1980, she wrote an article called Ireland and the Breakup of Britain. And I wondered if she might be talking about Scotland quite soon. <laughs> um, the paper that Diane is going to be speaking to has now gender inequality. A note on Piketty's capital in the 21st century has now been accepted for the British Journal of Sociology. And there's a couple of other things I would like to say about Diane, and she's published extensively. She's also been very active in policy engagements with uh, the EU, with the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development, Commonwealth Secretariat and so on. But she's also been a a, a leading member, she's been on the Managing Committee of the Women's Budget Group in Britain, which has been a very, very important group monitoring the impacts of the way that governments raise and spend money. And one of her very important contributions to the LSE and to the Gender Institute is founding with Anya Plumian the first feminist economics course, I think, in the UK. And finally, she will be co directing the forthcoming Commission on Gender Inequality and Power, uh, which uh, the LSE is, is sponsoring. So I would like to invite Diane. She will speak for around 50 minutes. Then we will have question and answer, and then we wrap up by eight o'clock. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Naila, um, for that very warm welcome. And thank you all very much for coming. And I'm sorry, some people who weren't able to get in tonight. Um, so, um, what I'm going to be doing tonight—actually, one thing I did mean to say was that um, I, ho- I hope there's some new students to the Gender Institute here tonight. Are there some? Some of you here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll see you all again tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but uh, in um, talking about um, gender inequality and power tonight. I want to acknowledge a couple of people I've been working closely with uh, in the last couple of years, Robin Dunford and Anya Plomian, both of whom are here tonight, as well as all my colleagues in the Gender Institute, uh, who over the years have shaped my thinking in uh, interdisciplinary and transnational ways, uh, and uh, various organisations I've been working with, in particular uh, the Women's Budget Group. Um, and while I sort of try to follow an interdisciplinary and transnational perspective, uh, tonight the transnational perspective is a bit less evident because while the processes that I'm speaking of operate at a transnational scale, um, the way things operate are always modified by context. And so to ground some of the things I'm talking about, I will be making specific uh, examples and uh, towards the end focus a little on where we are in the here and now, the UK in a period of crisis and austerity, and according to the uh, Conservative Party conference uh, that's going on at the moment, uh, to a new round of austerity that we can look forward to. Okay, so um, let's begin. Um, So. While the world has never been more opulent uh, and poverty on a world scale has fallen, inequality has intensified uh, both between countries and within countries. There has been um, the, the, the huge gap that exists between the United States and Europe on the one hand and much of the rest of the globe on the other has continued to widen up until about the 1990s Whereupon there's been some convergence uh, as a consequence largely of uh, increased economic growth in China and India uh, and also in the resource-rich countries in Africa, including Nigeria, Sudan, Botswana and Angola, to name but a few. But at the same time as inequality has been increasing and now just beginning to converge a little bit, uh, inequality is widening within countries as well. Um, And what is happening is that there's now a much, much more complicated pattern of inequality than a straightforward global north and global south, though indeed that does exist still, as we've seen in the previous slide. Um, And what's happening now then is, um, as Chandra Mahanti argued, that we now have haves in the global south and have-nots in the global north. The 85 richest people that uh, Christine Lagarde, the uh, CEO of the um, International Monetary Fund, speaks of there, they control as much wealth as the poorest half of the population. And incidentally, that is just the number of people who would fit on a London double-decker bus. So imagine those people, they own all that, as much as half The rest of the world. But interestingly, they're not restricted to the global north anymore, but come from a whole wide range of regions. Um, So um, these contemporary levels of inequality then have generated growing public concern um, amongst religious groups, amongst world leaders, and not only from the political left. Uh, Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, has topped the book charts. There have got activist movements, including Occupy, that have captured the public imagination. And these world leaders, including people like Pope Francis, Barack Obama, and Christine Lagarde, have called for more inclusive uh, forms of capitalism. And this this, um, sort of anxiety about inequality, then, reflects widespread public concern that the contemporary levels of inequality are unsustainable, that they undermine economic growth and political stability, as well as um, affecting negatively economic and social well-being. And furthermore, as Tom O. Piketty argues, they're incompatible with meritocratic values and principles of social justice, which are fundamental uh, to a, a democratic society. Um, at The May 2014 conference of the Inclusive Capitalism Group in London Christine Lagarde, Bill Clinton, Mark Carney and the Prince of Wales uh, made reference to the importance of ensuring uh, that the economy serves the people rather than vice versa. And this is a long-standing claim of feminist economists that, you know, the economy is there to look after us, not us there to look after the economy. And that's now gathering support amongst these characters, as I... Indicate And Christine Lagarde, and I mention her quite a lot because being the head of the International Monetary Fund, I think makes her an interesting figure. Um, and she, she was perhaps among the most radical of these. She referred to Karl Marx, which again is somewhat unusual. Um, she referred to, <laughs> to Karl Marx's argument that capitalism contains the seeds of its own destruction And what she was asking then was whether inclusive capitalism was an oxymoron or whether it could be an effective response to Marx. And, um, you know, will it enable capitalism to regenerate and survive and to make it um, truly the engine for shared prosperity? So, you know, there's a strong interest in doing something uh, about this concern, And this this interest in um, inequality then is very refreshing to people who've been interested in social justice for a long time. Um, But what's interesting is that while you have this big interest in inequality, um, there's much less attention being paid to the ways in which inequality is simultaneously gendered and racialized. uh, And the solutions that are put forward generally depend on redistributing wealth rather than challenging the processes that generate inequality in the first place. Um, So um, the question of of gender inequality is somewhat neglected. You tend to find in in Europe and North America that attention is sometimes drawn to headline cases of maltreatment and injustice, especially relating to violence, and especially when it relates to somewhere else. Um, Much less attention is paid to the everyday maltreatment and injustice experienced especially by women as a consequence of economic injustices within market societies. Um, As the World Economic Forum note in their annual publications, um, some of the gender gap has been narrowing, especially with respect to health and education, but wide gaps still remain when it comes to the politics and the economy. Uh, Women are vastly underrepresented in leadership positions where gender seems to matter more than qualifications and when women do reach the top, as Christine Lagarde argued, they're more likely to be fired. Um, Economically, a significant pay gap remains. Globally, women only earn three-quarters as much as men, even with the same job and the same level of education. They're underrepresented in the formal sector and overrepresented in the informal sector, they spend twice as much time on household chores as men, and four times as much on childcare. Uh, and this uh, over-representation of women among domestic labour has a negative effect on other spheres. Um, it's often regarded as a natural task for women, and that means it's undervalued economically, as we shall see shortly. Um, and that ne- impacts negatively on people who work in that sector they're seen as using natural talents rather than material competencies. Um, The over-representation in domestic work um, reduces women's availability for paid work, and their corresponding um, low incomes reduces their voice, their assets, and their independence. Um, So effectively, this uh, unequal division of labor operates as a time tax on women and reflects and reinforces unequal power relations between women and men. Now, clearly, gender, women intersects with uh, the, the idea of, of, of women and focus on gender. That intersects with other di- significant social dimensions such as disability, race, migrant status and so on. And what this means is that the level of disadvantage is particularly high amongst people who are minorities um, amongst those different spheres too. So what I'm aiming to do this evening then is take an interdisciplinary and transnational perspective, it's kind of transnational Uh, to highlight the processes driving and legitimating inequality in its gender dimensions. And I want to consider the power relations that support these inequalities, as well as the everyday processes through which these inequalities are reproduced and normalized. Um, So by addressing uh, gender inequality in this way, I hope to provide a fuller understanding of contemporary economic uh, inequality and um, hopefully we'll think maybe collectively at the end about what might we do about it. Um, My focus tonight is very much on inequality within countries, uh, but that's very much connected to the inequalities that also exist between uh, countries, especially through the processes of neoliberalisation and also the processes of financialisation with which that's been associated Uh, And in doing so, I shall be drawing quite a bit on uh, Thomas Biggity. It's a tremendous read for any of you who haven't looked at it. Uh, It does have one or two issues, though, that um, maybe uh, I will say something about. But it's a fabulous book. Don't don't detract from that. But, you know, nobody solves all the world's problems. Nobody addresses all the issues. It's a good idea to read people and think about what they do and build on it rather than... uh, just condemn them because they don't do everything. Um, So the central, though actually having said that, it does affect the analysis in important ways, but anyway, we'll come on to that. (laughs) So, but main, well, yes, anyway, sorry. (laughs) Um, Okay, so the, the kind of central tendency, the central element, rather, of Piketty's analysis is the rise of contemporary inequality. What he, you know, the return of a gilded age, what he terms a second bell epoch, and this, his analysis rests predominantly on analysing statistical trends over the long term, and what they show. I have a pointer in my bag, Nyla, mm, which I've neglected. <laughs> Can You just pass the bag. Yeah. Yeah, so if you look at, I, I, what, just, just to sort of an indication on style, I, I shall, most, if you're not too good on diagrams, most of the key points are in the text, so don't worry about it. So I'm not, I'm not going to go into the diagrams in, um, in, in depth. Um, but what, what you can see in that is the way in which there is a tendency uh, for the, the real rate of return on capital to be um, higher than the rate of economic growth. And what this means is then that over time the share of national income, which goes to capital to wealth holders, tends to increase, and that process becomes cumulative over time, resulting in widening inequalities. so the first um, bell epoch was you know the sort of 19th century, uh, and you can see then that, the, that capital that the share of um, Of of, uh, looking at the bottom diagram there, the the, the capital was equivalent to something like 700 times uh, annual income capital wealth. That fell during the Great Compression uh, to around three and a half, but is now rising to levels that existed previously. Um, The figures for uh, the US and Europe as a whole are very similar. If you break Europe down, Uh, The UK is highest with Sweden the lowest, but the tendency uh, is apparent in all of them. So what this means is that the share of wealth or the share of value added, the share of output which goes to working people, it has been declining significantly in the last 30 years. And Piketty's data is confirmed by a whole range of uh, institutions such as the ILO, UNCTAD and others. This is a trend which has been uh, identified. Um, and the the, the data is really showing these trends is is undeniable and the extent of inequality that Piketty identifies is nothing short of scandalous Um, between 1977 and 2007 for example um, the richest 10% appropriated three quarters of the growth in national income so three quarters of the growth in national income went to the top 10%. 10%. And 60% went to the top decile. And this is, in the, this is these are specifically for the United States, but as I said, other countries in Europe are similar, with the UK being most similar and the more social democratic countries, similar trend but less extreme. And 1% is not a small number of people in the United States. I imagine some of you are from the United States. So do you know how many people that would be, roughly? I can tell you, it's um, 2.6 million, which is quite enough to influence the political agenda. So with this expansion of inequality, you're also getting a capture of political power. And what what makes matters worse is that the trend is cumulative. So holders of large sums of money accumulate more. They get better financial advice, they get higher rates of return, and their capital grows over time. And one, one reason it grows as well is that I've taken the example of uh, Lillian Betancourt, the heiress of L'Oreal. Um, she has a fortune of 30 billion, all right? Now, if she gets the average rate of return of 5%, she will have an income of about 500 million pounds a year. Now, that's somewhat difficult to spend.
0: Um, LAUGHTER
1: no, well, I have—I don't have personal empirical evidence for that. I have to. <laughs> um, so what it means then is that the—and of that, she declares five million. This is all quite legal. She declares five million in in tax. All right. So basically, her effective tax rate is 0.00. Is that enough? Yeah, one percent. Whereas you compare that with the standard rate of income tax in the UK, which is 20%. So you can, uh, you can see um, that, you know, that this is a problem about contributive justice. You know, we're not all contributing equally to, the, to well-being. Those who have money, while they would claim to do philanthropic concerns and so on, I mean, in general, the contribution they make is very small compared to the uh, amount of wealth they have. And that difference between the 500 and the um, 5 million, you know, will be reinvested and generate more returns and so on. So it, it becomes very cumulative. Now, there's a real problem from a gender perspective when thinking about, um, uh, uh, by th- thinking about wealth in that statistics that are gathered are very sparse and it's, it's quite difficult to find. Um, Piketty has done a lot of work in terms of gathering data on the top 10% of the population, which are usually overlooked in main surveys like OECD and so on. The the top 10% are overlooked, but he's able to get that level. He also has... It's also... Um, by adults but it's not um, differentiated by any other categories, um, gender or race or anything else and so there's a lot of work to be done in just getting knowledge about exactly uh, what the distribution of wealth is but just looking at a smaller statistic the Times Rich List uh, something like 114 to 1000 are women and only 2 got that through their earnings. Uh, Do you recognise the characters there? It's uh, J.K. Rowling, author of Harry Potter. Um, And the other is uh, Tamara Mellon, the founder of Jimmy Choo Shoes, which you may or may not know of. Um, They're not in my wardrobe, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so Piketty is very concerned about the high level of inequality, all right? Um, And because because it is cumulative, he's arguing you have to have redistributive tax on it the only way to sort of do something about just for example I'm I'm not I have no problem with Lillian Betancourt particularly but to stop her wealth multiplying and multiplying it's necessary to tax away some of those um, gains so what he's advocating then is um sorry I've gone too far okay so what oh sorry just to make another point that I was going to make there The um, rise in inequality in recent times, though, is especially due to the rise of wage inequality. Um, The top top, um, 1% or the top 10% of the population have been massively expanding their share of income compared to everyone else and at the same time on that income since the 1980s the marginal tax rate has fallen very uh, dramatically so you can kind of see a correlation uh, there between those those two trends. So Piketty's solution then is to have a global wealth tax and a more steeply progressive income tax and you know I I think those are um, both very important um, qualities. But it doesn't do anything about the processes generating inequality in the first place. It's allowing the market to continue much as it is. And indeed, in commenting on the value of this approach, he argues that this is a relatively liberal method for reducing inequality because free competition and private property are respected uh, while private incentives are modified in potentially radical ways. So you're not actually doing anything about the processes generating inequality. And just by contrast, OECD argue that um, you know, the only sustainable way to reduce inequality is to stop the underlying increase in wages. And I, I take that view myself. Um, turning to the, thinking about gender issues, and uh, Christine Lagarde, and her comment about um, uh, capitalism, inclusive capitalism uh, is an oxymoron. Um, she, she thinks that it, it is not, uh, because if you tax effectively... And uh, as far as trying to ensure gender inequality is resolved, if you um, deal with, uh, if you kind of try and do something about uh, women's empowerment, um, she endorses Martia Sen's argument here that gender equality requires increasing women's voice and agency uh, through increasing their independence and empowerment. And following Sen, she argues that this is about economic opportunity, uh, the ability to freely choose one's own path in life according to one's distinctive talents and abilities, and it's about cutting away obstacles to true human flourishing. But she says, "Well, you know, Sen's all very well, but what does he mean in practice? You know, what does this? How does these? How do these lofty aims translate into um, in, into policy?" And she argues that it means uh, focusing on education. Uh, ownership rights and employment opportunities outside the home. Now this reference to education is a bit inconsistent given that she points out that gender inequality remains even when women have the same um, job and education as men. But more generally she's very much referring to achieving gender equality through greater engagement with the market. Uh, And my point is that the market reproduces many of the inequalities that we're dealing with. So redistributing through tax, while it's very good and I would support it, uh, needs more. You need to stop the inequalities or address the inequalities rising in the first place. And the reason they're not addressed, it seems to me, is because the market holds a very strong role in people's understanding of life, that that the market is seen very much as working in everyone's interests. Um, And, you know, so what I want to contest is that that is the case. I mean, that's hardly original, but when you think of the ways in which market rationality has become kind of taken as the norm, taken as being unchallenged, it even sort of influences how we think about doing things ourselves then um, you know, it really does need an important challenge uh, to, to, to its existence. So what I'm thinking about in the next part of this talk then is how public consent is secured for policies and systems that are not in the interests of the majority. Um, and, and think about a little bit. I'm going to address that economically by looking at the question of wage determination and the question of austerity policies but I'm also going to think briefly about how it's con- uh, justified politically and just towards the end uh, how it's considered, how it's legitimised or reinforced uh, in popular culture. And as I say, I think in terms of the last point, we'll have to do that collectively through um, discussion, partly because I don't have any answers. Well, I have <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so just reminding ourselves that uh, the rise of income inequality since the 1970s is largely due to rising wage inequality and particularly the um, increasing income share of the top decile in which women and racial and ethnic minorities are underrepresented. Now, the beneficiaries of this system, uh, including academic economists, um, who are in the top decile but not in the top uh, of the distribution. Um, beneficiaries of this system uh, consider these top incomes as being legitimate and reflective of a hyper meritocracy or well working economy that generates just returns based on marginal productivity theory, which is the idea that you employ people up until the point at which their, out- their wages would exceed uh, their output. No, sorry, uh, the, the, their output would not exceed. Their wages. It would not be worth employing another person. They would not be contributing enough. So your wage is really due to your contribution. This is how how the theory works. Now, critics of marginal productivity theory, including um, Piketty, he rejects this theory when it comes to top incomes. He says it is not capable of explaining the evidence. For example, marginal productivity theory cannot explain the difference between the top 1% whose incomes have increased massively in the United States and the rest of the top decile, uh, whose increases were only slightly above average. Um, Neither can it account for income differential between the elite in different European countries, Um, and further, the... um, Individual differences cannot be explained by any objective measure of education, skill, or experience, or even with company performance. Now, you, you don't have to be a statistician to realise that there doesn't seem to be any relationship uh, between stock market returns and CEO pay. They're there's Kind of, yeah. It's more like a spotted dress or something of that kind, I guess. But anyway, um, so. Um, uh, and in addition to this, if top managers really were so productive, one would expect to find higher levels of economic growth in the present where these incomes have expanded. But actually levels of economic growth now are much lower than they were when income tax levels and wealth tax levels were 80% on top incomes. I didn't realise, you know, till I was reading Piketty that levels were as high as, as that in the 1980s. And, you know, people didn't disappear to other countries and the economy didn't stop. So, you know, the kind of arguments for not having taxation really do not seem to be um, very well justified. So what Piketty argues then is that these top incomes, rather than reflecting higher marginal productivity, the wealth of contemporary elites reflects their power to set their own remuneration, and it's constrained only by social norms. What it depends on then is their position in the, uh, their bargaining position within the hierarchy and within the prevailing social norms, which vary over time and space and are influenced by each country's uh, specific history. Uh, So you find that um, executive compensation of several million euros a year is still more shocking today in Sweden, Germany, France, and Japan and Italy than it is in the United States or Britain, which reflects different beliefs about. Uh, the contributions different individuals make to firm output and to economic growth in general and how it should be valued in comparison to others. Now, but nevertheless, Piketty re- does refer to social norms and this is crucial because it broadens the explanation of wages from a form of methodological individualism to include social processes, um, though Piketty neglects to consider how these social norms are gendered um, and... Uh, Uh, and racialised. I mean, he does make some references to the question of of race in in capital, but not so much in the recent period and its significance. So, given the emphasis that Piketty places on this increase in labour incomes uh, for the contemporary surge in inequality, it might be expected that he would elaborate more on social norms and why they've become tolerant of elite salaries. Um, Indeed, he recognises that while reference to social norms is plausible, it only shifts the difficulty to another level uh, because it's necessary to explain where these social norms come from, how they involve. But he says this is obviously a question for sociology, psychology, cultural and political history, uh, and uh, you know all those sorts of areas. Now, I think it's very... You know, it's very refreshing for an economist to recognise that other disciplines have some value. Um, <laughs> I hope that's not a sackable event. Actually. Um, but, um, but uh, a, a, you know, a genuine. A gen- all right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Anyway, um, (laughs) uh, but what would be a genuinely interdisciplinary approach does not simply defer unresolved questions to other disciplines. Rather, it draws on those ideas from other disciplines to enrich the analysis of the issue in question, in this case, um, economic inequality. And I think it's possible to demonstrate the value of such an interdisciplinary approach um, if we focus on care work. Um... And um, so, um, whereas Piketty (coughs) argues that marginal productivity theory can explain wages for most of the distribution, it's just those top people it can't account for, feminist economists would argue that it can't explain um, distribution more generally, and especially when it comes to something like care work. And feminist economists argue then, that you know, just like super managers, it's very hard to assess the output of an individual care work. It's very difficult to measure. Um, care is a composite good, simultaneously consisting of guarding, preventing any harm to anyone, um, caring for identifiable bodily needs, and nurturing. Um, it involves direct human encounters and so possesses an, in, an inherently effective dimension that varies in practice but is perhaps only discernible by the recipient. Um, the value of good quality care, as Diane Elson has pointed out, um, is also likely to have external benefits uh, which are only realised in the long term in the form of uh, responsible and uh, more uh, citizens. So, despite these qualities, then, care work is. is um, generally low paid um, the average childcare worker in the UK receives 18,000 pounds a year and that's someone with 20 years experience uh, whereas an average worker is on 26,000 a year and that's that both for full time work. Now if you care, compare that with the extreme of the distribution, um, the CEO of a FTSE 100 company gets something like 4.3 4. million pounds a year Uh, And a large organisation would get something like 450K or perhaps even higher. Um, Now, what what, what you're saying by this is, if the market was working properly, effectively, although I suppose Piketty's excluded it from the very top incomes, um, but what you're saying is that a a FTSE 100 manager would be, the the output that they would produce in two and a half days would be equivalent to a childcare worker working for a whole year. Um, and for the manager of a large organisation, the output that they produced within a month would be equivalent to, you'd say that's worth as much as what a childcare worker produces over the year. So, I mean, I'm not sure if people were asked about that, whether they would kind of agree with that relative valuation. You know, good, a well cared for child um, over a whole year, as opposed to boosting the earnings of some. Financial company um, I, you know it 's it's, it's a, it's a really it 's a, it, it's, it's a really huge difference um, and yet you know this, uh, the, the, this, this um, work is um, um, you know it, it, it forms a large part of female employment um, so what determines these these wages? is it merit through the market i, I don 't think so. Um, Is it to do with social norms? Yes. But then how do these social norms um, actually operate in practice? Um, We can think about about this um, in in a bit more detail, but one one aspect that um, does bear some thought is that um, some of the characteristics of low pay, of of care work, may justify its, its... not justify... Uh, May explain, may account for uh, its lower pay, and that is that it's it's, it's what um, William Beaumont calls a technologically unprogressive activity. It's very difficult to increase productivity in care without changing the nature, uh, without changing the um, quality of the good provided. Uh, Productivity is difficult to increase owing to the relational qualities of the work. That is, effective labour itself is both input and output and cannot be reduced unless the character of the work is profoundly changed. Uh, In William Bowmore's example, he uh, gave the example of trying to increase the productivity of a string quintet, and just as speeding up the tune would (laughs) change the quality of the music, uh, expecting child minders to look after six toddlers simultaneously rather than four, which was the government limit, and a serious policy that the government put forward and then abandoned. Uh, I mean, the craziness of it is demonstrated in, um, in, in the photograph that Zoe Williams uh, produced in The Guardian where she shows, I think it could be herself, I'm not entirely sure. Um, with six toddlers to look after, I mean, what do you do if one needs to go to the loo or something like that? I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a chaotic situation that cannot be justified. But that then sort of contributes to the way in which these sectors are not producing much in terms. You know, they're, they're very costly to provide, to provide good quality care. The costs tend to rise in those sectors relative to other goods. Um, and what this generally means is that those sorts of sectors either are subsidised, or they disappear from the market, or they are available only to an elite. But the other way of resolving that problem is to employ a socially disadvantaged workforce. And if you look at the, care, the composition of care workers um, throughout Europe, it's um, amongst the care workers it are overrepresented. Um, uh, uh, Women and ethnic and racial minorities, that that people who sort of have less choice in a way um, tend to find themselves in these sectors because uh, uh, of the low wages uh, that are paid. Uh, And so it's through this, um, care is also something which, because of the uh, unequal domestic (coughs) division of labour, it's something that women do in the home. Um, And this sort of process of naturalisation then leads to these unequal rewards for different kinds of work being normalised, which sort of tends to legitimate ongoing and even rising inequalities. Um, Now, Piketty might respond that simply pointing to norms and their naturalisation through repeated practice only serves to restate the problem and does not get down to the root of the question of how and why these gendered practices and gendered differential rewards emerged in the first place. And I think what mustn't be forgotten here, then, is questions of privilege and power uh, that underlie some of these processes. Um, What is clear is that focusing only on the economy and understanding the economy in terms of already pre-given Conceptions of what constitutes productive work fails to address the full complexity of contemporary inequality, uh, and to this end it 's very important to take a wider view of the economy as feminist economists do uh, in thinking about the economy not only as things which currently enter GDP but also includes the reproductive sector as well um, so why is it then uh, sorry so um, One of the uh, points here is that these kinds of goods and services tend, as I said, to be... Their costs rise relative to other goods. It's difficult to provide them profitably. They're sectors which historically were taken over by public provision and uh, provided through the public sector. But because they're difficult to make money from in times of cuts, it's precisely these sectors that are cut, cut, and it's precisely these sectors where you have these... um, these um, pressures for privatisation because it's thought that the reason they're not making money is because they're inefficient, because they're public sector and that the private sector will do a better job. The only way in which the private sector can do a better job is by reducing the terms and conditions of employment of people working there, which is one of the reasons explaining the, the, the overall wage differences that exist uh, between women and men. So, so it's these sorts of activities which are being badly affected by, the, um, by, by, by cuts. I mean, in, in the UK, the care sector has been privatised uh, for quite a long time now, but where these kinds of activity, these forms of care still exist in the public sector, or did exist, they're, they're being challenged. Uh, by privatisation, which typically uh, i 'm not sure I have time to go into that example means a reduced, a reduced set of um, con- terms and conditions of employment. Um, but then the question is is austerity really quite so necessary? Um, so this is what I'm going to address now. Um, first of all, if you go back to that early diagram I had where you talked to, where it showed capital share as a percentage of national income. You can see that whereas the public sector uh, doesn't have much uh, income at all, uh, going negative in some ways in relation to overall output each year, the private sector has loads of money. Um, Lillian Bettencourt's fortune, for example, as I said I think a moment ago, increased from $2 billion to $25 billion between 1910 and 2010. I mean, huge increases. The private sector is very wealthy. I mean, you know, Europe as a whole is not in debt. It's the public sector in Europe that is in debt. Uh, you know, clearly that might be resolved through tax- taxes. And you can think about fiscal space in this kind of way. You can think of fiscal space as being the space which reflects government expenditures, revenue and debt. And it can be expanded or contracted depending on on what people do and depending on the amount of public sector sector expenditure and how much tax is is raised in revenue and so on. And so, you know, the fiscal space is, as the IMF defines it there, room in a government's budget that allows it to provide resources for a desired purpose without jeopardizing this. All right, right. so the first part is all right. It allows it to provide resources for a desired purpose, all right? So you, you raise money and you do something with it. And there's no real limit on what you choose to do or what that space is. There's no technical barriers but the thing is what the IMF insists be a constraint is the sustainability of its financial position or state of the economy. Now by state of economy as Diane Elson again has argued this means that government debt does not get too high. Um, So uh, if it gets too high it raises the concerns of the um, credit the people who are lending it money, uh, and, you know, you can have threats on your currency and and so on and so forth. And the the rentiers want to have their money repaid. And this gives rise to a deflationary bias in terms of managing public accounts. The present government in the UK, for example, wants to reduce the debt to practically zero. But, you know, um, you you borrow in order to do things, uh, to make choices. And depend, you know, as long as those choices are real, uh, are useful, then you know there's not really uh, a problem uh, with it. So what this means is that because this is a kind of put as a constraint, you'll find that um, public banks, you know, the banks of countries go outside of politics even, and the management of the public space becomes a technical exercise rather than a political choice. And one, as, as one of the students on our feminist economics degree pointed out. Um, Really, you know, you can think of it as... Instead of thinking about uh, the fiscal space as being constrained by um, financial stability, which suits the interests of the rentier class, you can think about it in terms of um, thinking about what kind of objectives you want to fulfil, that you you manage the public space in terms of taking account of the specific needs of marginalised groups uh, and using various things like gender, race, impact analyses and so on. Um, But at the moment... Um, the UK government is very much concerned to reduce that debt. Um, and the way in which it's trying to do it is just through one thing, changing public expenditure. Right? Now, the alternative would be to tax those people who are making huge sums of money at the moment. You could wipe off the debt very easily. Instead of that, you're having all these cuts to real people's lives. Um, you can, uh, And I'm just going to skip a bit of the presentation here because I realise I'm getting a bit out of Um, out of sync I mean well just just to say just to say that the present government then says there's no alternative to austerity If we don't have austerity, we'll have market turmoil, flight of investors, dismay of business, the loss of confidence, credit downraise, and so so many terrible things will happen. Uh, We need to cut the deficit, and we need to cut it now. So there will be cuts coming. But what do cuts do? Why not raise those taxes? You know, uh, the Prime Minister claims we're all in this together, but actually we're not. The Fawcett, Unison, the Women's Budget Group, amongst others, have shown that cuts impact disproportionately on women in a very, very negative way. Um, one example is something like domestic violence. You don't have people protesting much when shelters close, certainly not people who've survived domestic violence. Um, the, the, it's, it's something which is very invisible. Um, and it's not something that people necessarily will protest around, and yet it will have a devastating effect. Not having centres where people can go in safety have a devastating effect on their lives. Um, And the reason it affects women disproportionately is because they're more likely to be employed in the public sector. Um, Women are more likely to be benefit claimants, and they are most likely, as the case of domestic violence illustrates there, they're most likely to be cut by cuts in Services uh, and also they're most likely to have to meet the gap in provision, which you know the Forsets Society describe as their uh, triple jeopardy. Um, another way in which um, cuts have affected again social care uh, there's a strike going on at the moment by uh, workers in Doncaster uh, over a care home. Uh, care homes which is is a a national health service provision for people with disabilities and and so on Uh, and that's recently been taken over by Bridgepoint which is a private equity company now the role of private equity companies is to move into a firm, try and restructure it and make money But the only way they can make money in this this sector is by cutting workers' conditions. And so the pay has been cut on an hourly basis and all the kind of payments for night work and so on have been dramatically reduced. New workers are being employed on inferior contracts. Um, And and some workers, not all of them, the, the, the service is still being provided, but some workers are protesting about this, not only because they've experienced a cut in pay, but they're concerned about the quality of the work that they're able to provide. Um, and, you know, you compare their earnings with those of the owners of these firms. And again, it's scandalous. Quite high bonuses were also paid out. And this is the husband of one of the strikers. who says, you have to pay the bankers to keep their bonuses, to keep the talent, which is arguable, but it's certainly received wisdom. Um, is this not as important or more important as keeping these people safe? They're very concerned about the quality of what they're able to offer. And the new firm is not doing any of the kind of training uh, that the um, NHS did previously. Um, so what I you know so the cuts have devastating effects it 's arguable how necessary they are. Certainly, if you want to cut the deficit, there are different ways of doing it. You could raise um, tax, and by so doing you 'd reduce some of the inequality that we 've seems to be a concern to not only the political left, but other people uh, in society. So that brings me to two final points that I want to make Just about politics and popular culture. And I think I can do this. I'll perhaps stick to the text, so I'll be brief. So, what secured and continued. So, the question I'm asking then is what secured and what continues to reproduce the understandings that legitimate increased and still increasing inequalities that benefit only a privileged and powerful elite? Now, Wendy Brown, in her Foucauldian account of neoliberal governmentality, argues that neoliberalism constitutes an entire political rationality that both organises these policies and reaches beyond the market, with neoliberal principles coming to dominate state governments and even reaching as far as the soul of the citizen subject. So the result of this form of neoliberal governmentality then is a society where an increasing number of dimensions of contemporary existence, be they personal or political, are cast in terms of market rationality. People therefore become the very rationally calculating individuals who bear full responsibility for the consequences of their actions that uphold and legitimise neoliberal policies and the inequalities that result from them. The development of a neoliberal economy thus produces the very subjectivities that legitimise the inequalities which are, with which they are associated, and these are all socially unjust. Um, the, the, the sort of rationality is such that we become entirely responsible for our own actions and we deserve whatever rewards we achieve. There are no structural barriers. We are, whatever, you know, we're responsible for our, our own fate. So, social position is seen to and uh, is understood to reflect qualities like endeavour, entrepreneurialism, innovation, and skill, and not the kind of broader social structural differences in opportunities that people are born into. Um, Not only are the purportedly wealth-generating elites carrying the rest of society with them, but their position reflects this in all these qualities of innovation, determination, uh, and skill. And they work hard and become successful. Conversely, those people who are um, low-income, out of work, and so on, uh, that th- th- their lowly status reflects a comparative laziness, a lack of desire to acquire market skills, a different set of priorities, or poor life choices. So, everyone is in the situation they deserve to be, and uh, interfering with such a just system would reward laziness and punish innovation. That last part is rather like an Osborne speech, actually. <laughs> when <you think> <laughs> So, you know, this sort of neoliberal mentality of individualization is rooted in the self. And just a very final point, very briefly to end on popular culture... this, you know, there's been a growth of reality TV and a lot of this reality TV <laughs> emphasises the transformative power of self-government and individual transcendence from the environment rather than acknowledging these structural barriers to, uh, to, to differential opportunities and, an op- and the need for change. Haley Taylor is the kind of character and apparently that outfit is kind of apparently... You know, uh, as, as, uh, uh, what um, Hannah Hamad, who's uh, written this piece, it's a very interesting piece, argues she's uh, portrayed as an effective dominatrix, the jacket indicating the, the dominant thing and the affect being apparently like an air hostess, that this, this scarf is meant to signify, you know, caring of some, some kind. But she's sort of presented in a very grotesque kind of caricature of femininity. <laughs> Um, and but, but the, the, um, you know in a sense it's kind of a form of misogyny as well. Um, but what, what what happens in the programme I should say is that she goes to an area of very high unemployment. One such area would be Hartlepool in North East England, where where she went. Unemployment is very very high. Uh, and what she does is she goes to the home of some unemployed person, monitors their re- monitors their behaviour and puts them on a new regime of strictness in all things, you know. Um, (laughs) uh, One thing was, oh, no, I've forgotten. One thing was really comical, but I can't remember what it was. Um, and um, you know so what she does is then she gets these people she makes puts them on a strict regime to get them uh, job ready so you know you will get a job even though the unemployment rate is really high I think it's um, t- uh, 10% and, and uh, it's an area of where you had a lot of uh, masculinised forms of unemployment like steel industries and so on and they've all disappeared so the unemployment rate is very very high um, There is a view that the the crisis is is particularly associated with the loss of men's jobs. In fact, that's not true. I mean, it's not like that. But anyway, she focuses quite a lot on male unemployment. And she she encourages these men to rediscover their masculinity, that their unemployment could be transcended by positivity, willpower, choice, effort, determination, and most of all by having belief. If job seekers believe, they can achieve. I am the man. That am. <laughs> and women, as per usual, are just in, just encouraged to empower themselves. You know. <laughs> Straightforward. And, and she's successful. You know, she, she gets this um, unemployed guy, nineteen years old, drop out from one of the public services. She gets, she manages to get him an apprenticeship in woodwork, which is, which is so rare in that area. You know, they had something like eight hundred people applying for fifty jobs in a new. Uh, venture of some kind uh, but she succeeds you know through this regime of self self governance self determination Um, And she also, there's a a huge sort of gender element in this, in that, first of all, she kind of threatens these men with stereotypical female employment (laughs) and then finds them this job in the stereotypically masculinised sector. I mean, you know, the the kind of values that come over in these programmes when you analyse them are really quite extraordinary and certainly reinforce that kind of neoliberal mentality. Now, i was saying we're going to have to do this collectively, but I just want to make one one or two points. I think to understand contemporary inequalities, it's necessary to go beyond the headline figures and explore not only uh, economic uh, statistical trends, but also the political, social, legal, cultural processes through which these inequalities are reproduced and legitimized. And to confront them, it's necessary to engage in much more than calls for individual empowerment and ex-post redistribution. It's necessary, um, though though those things would help, but it's necessary to address the full range of processes and practices through which they're reproduced and legitimised. Um, from the perspective of ec- uh, feminist economics, two particular challenges are important in this respect. To recognise that human life and society consist of interdependent relational human beings rather than the self-seeking atomistic entity. And to recognise that the task of the economy has to be one of social provisioning rather than economic growth alone. And in this regard, it is critical to have intellectual spaces. Uh, such as the Gender Institute, where these issues can be discussed in an interdisciplinary uh, and transnational way. Uh, And so I think it's really important that we preserve spaces which are, in fact, open to interdisciplinary perspectives. And one such venture that the Gender Institute is involved in, as Nyla pointed out at the beginning, is this Commission on Gender, Inequality and Power which will be looking at a variety of different takes on inequality, uh, economics, politics, law, media, culture, with cross-cutting themes of balance, work-life, balance, organisation, rights and power. And I I hope very much uh, that we'll be having some events associated with that commission, and I hope that you'll be able to come. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. I think that was a very, very stimulating talk. And uh, I'm going to throw open the floor to questions and answers. But before I do that, I just want to, I'm not going to ask any questions, but I just want to pick up on a couple of things that Diane said that really struck me. One was that she talked earlier about Piketty on norms and the extent to which norms in a society determine our tolerance of inequality. And that's a little depressing because we know norms evolve over a long historical period. But I think it also holds out a bit of hope. And that is if we can get a sort of collective consensus that these very obscene inequalities are unacceptable, perhaps we can make change. I think the second point was you, you quoted Cameron, I think, saying uh, there is no alternative austerity and I wondered where I'd heard that phrase before you know there is no alternative and of course it was Thatcher and it's very interesting <laughs> and it's very interesting that when people construct the world as having no alternatives the only alternative that they're willing to countenance are the ones that hit hardest those at the bottom of the, of the pile I mean we never have there is no alternative but to help the most marginalized groups you know, it's always, there is no alternative, but, you know, we can't tax the rich and so on and so forth. Um, so thank you again. And I'm going to uh, invite questions. Uh, I would, as is customary here, uh, plead with you not to give lectures. Uh, just keep your questions short. There, is, there are roving mics around the hall. And when it comes to you, could you just say who you are and where you're from and and ask your question? And, of course, the shorter you keep your question, the more people get to ask. So who wants to ask the first
2: questions? Okay, I saw... Thank you very much for such a really, um, a really stimulating and I think really challenging talk. Um, I just wondered, my question relates really to the sort of final part of your talk where you were talking about discussing feminist alternatives and it just struck me when you put up the picture of the fairy godmother and some of the kind of vocabulary that we associate with that sort of you know, reality TV of like, um, empowerment and choice and agency, it really struck me that um, I've been working within the women's sector myself and also um, for um, you know, more recently in academia and it just struck me the ways in which I've seen feminist academia absolutely being saturated with that same language of, you know, I'm sure we've all seen it, if you did a discourse analysis across the, you know, a lot of the you know, journal articles, of, you know, around things that, you know, like the sex industry and pole dancing and virtually any facet of society that you can think of in relation to women, it's um, the language of choice, agency and empowerment, I think, have replaced much more of a kind of structural analysis and certainly I was quite taken aback to find that in the women's sector it was very, very similar, like I used to run a program that I kind of feel slightly embarrassed to admit was called Safe Choices and it was about young women and sexual violence and, you know, and all the kind of implicit victim blaming of that phrase but it really struck me how it's, you know, I think it's much more comfortable to talk about agency and empowerment and choices because it doesn't actually threaten men it doesn't threaten bastions of male power so I just wondered what, what you think about that whether you agree with that and you know, how you think we might get beyond that
0: Okay, thank you very much. Yes, we'll take a few more. The lady at the back with her hand up. Um, thank you very much. So, in the true spirit of neoclassical economics, what can we do as individual agents to change these <laughs> structural situations? And there is someone over here.
3: forget
2: Hello. Um, I was just wondering what we can do. Would you do- just give your name? And- oh, sorry. My name is Sonia. I'm from London. I'm um,
0: <laughs>
2: Where in London? Um, I'm from East London. <laughs> anyway. She's keeping her whereabouts very secret. Um, so what's my question? My question was um, about how we can bring value back to things like the care sector that you quite rightly said are sort of crippled by uh, how rapidly technology develops and obviously it's a sector where we can't compromise quality so I was just wondering how we can bring value back to industries like that
1: So maybe Dan you'd like to take those? Yeah, um, Taking them in turn um, I, I think what you're referring to very much is the um, what's referred to as the post-feminist uh, literature. Um, my own feeling is that there's a bit of a reaction in the sense that materiality is coming back into play a little bit Uh, partly through other feminist work which actually is quite critical of um, the sort of choice empowerment perspective. I mean, Naila's work on empowerment, for example, would be um, very uh, instrumental in in that field. In uh, the Gender Institute, we have Kalpana uh, Wilson and Sumi Maddox who work on um, sort of challenging what exactly agency does, what it can achieve and what role it it plays. So um, I I think, in a sense, feminist literature is very broad, and it depends a little bit on what you read. You know, although we have these waves coming, they don't exactly displace one another, they more often exist side by side, so while this post-feminist literature has been happening on the one hand, you still have a lot of other literature which is addressing still addressing some of the material challenges which are implicitly critical of um, just using these terms without any kind of um, reflection on uh, the extent to which they're likely that, that they're realistically possible, so you know um, uh, I, think, I think that's a feature of that literature. I think it's a problematic one, but I do think there is a critique there. Uh, as individual agents, what can we do? I mean, this is the sort of, you know, how does one live a life in a society which is one, you know, doesn't really um, agree with. Can you do anything without compromising your morality? I think it was, um, who was it, the, the American, uh, uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, Uh, who says that the only way to lead an ethical life is to go to a forest and try and live on leaves. You know, (laughs) anything else, you're kind of almost certainly uh, affecting someone negatively somewhere in the world. So, you know, it's it's very, very difficult. But what what individual people can do? I mean, there are the big questions on the one hand, but there are also smaller questions that that can be tackled on a a day-to-day basis. I mean, you know, my youth, I may have been a revolutionary, but as you get older, you realise that, you know, as John Stuart Mill said, life is not a repeatable experiment, and to do (laughs) something in the here and now really makes a difference. So I think trying to sort of... uh, Without necessarily being a do-gooder in a wrong sense, actually trying to um, do whatever one can. Um, I, I guess, you know, as an academic, my what I try to do is to expose. Uh, certain problems in particular. I think one of the things which is missing in the development literature, which allows those ideas about choice and agency to dominate, is the ne- neglect of the kind of analysis of macroeconomic processes which set the context within which these various development policies unfold. So I think highlighting that, and on a, you know, another level, there are various sort of organizations that do work. Uh, I myself work with the Women's Budget Group, which um, does have this broader. feminist vision of of what an economy should be like, very critical of the way neoclassical operates through the atomistic economic man, wants to see understandings of the economy that bring in the productive and reproductive sector, but at the same time works on a day-to-day basis to expose what the government budget is doing in terms of its gender impact, and that's a group of volunteers who do that work. They try to bring it to attention on the internet. One can never be responsible for how one's ideas are received Unfortunately. Well, well, maybe you have some responsibility, but you know, it is hard to get people to accept ideas that are contrary to popular wisdom. And then the third point was about um, care. care and how one values care. I think, I think, again, I think one of the things which, um, you know, say, for example, is in the Piketty book, uh, he does reference a way in which you know, not everywhere is like the United States in the United Kingdom, um, there are countries in Europe which are social democratic where you have quite different policies as far as care is concerned and although you've still got these same tendencies it's still low paid, it still has a high gender context it still has a high minority context um, the, nonetheless the, the kind of terms and conditions for employment are better there is training and so on and I think to highlight the fact that difference within the present is possible uh, is, a, is a constructive thing to do so I would sort of try to do comparative analysis to, to, you know, to well, I mean, there's lots of literature which does this, you know, to emphasise, say, in this country, the very, very high costs of childcare that people pay, the very low working conditions that people have in that sector, and to point out that it doesn't have to be like that. You know, the, the economy won't fall apart. Sweden is doing far better than we are, and they actually have a less, less bad care sector. <laughs>
0: Um, Yes, over there. And the gentleman over there. And then the lady over there. And then I'll come to you. We take three at a time.
2: Okay, Professor, I come from
0: a a country in Europe with the lowest rate of uh, uh, female participation to the job market, that's Italy. And uh, I'm asking, um, would you, as a measure of uh, public policy, would you focus on uh, giving incentives to com- to enterprises for hiring more female staff or rather you would uh, uh, review the taxation system and the way our families are taxed in order to encourage female participation to the job market and not to leave uh, women and particularly mothers segregated within home. So the question is: Would you focus on the way how the market can find a solution, or the way how uh, the distribution of uh, is, is within families, and so the social norms within families? Okay, um, gentleman there. And who's the third? I
3: Hi.
2: Um, when Francois Hollande came into power in France, his policy was very much taxing the rich. I was wondering if you could comment briefly on the relative successes or failures of that in practice. Can we have another
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I've forgotten who I pointed to as a third person, so I'm going to go to the person There was someone here with the hand up. Yeah. I don't know. Oh yes, it was you. Okay, we'll come to you next. Okay, <laughs> after this round. Sorry. Oh, we'll take her as well.
2: Hi, um, I'm from
1: LSE and I'm doing first-year government and economics. Um, my
2: question is quite simple because um, we, we talked about social norms and um, things like self-governance and determination.
1: Um, are you optimistic or pessimistic about um, the future of, of women, I mean, <laughs> female, <laughs> in this society with these you know, social norms? Um, can self-governance and things like this really help? Thank you.
0: Actually, we will take uh, the person in the middle, because I had forgotten. Yeah.
2: Hi, I'm Zarina from East London. Um, and my <laughs>
0: and whereabouts whereabouts in <laughs> Iceland?
2: Um, there you go, um, And my question is is it fair to say that the narrowing difference between men and women's employment rates is not a sign of
0: increasing gender inequality but a reflection of the deteriorating employment situation of both men and women so in turn the, clo- the gap is closing due to levelling downwards not because of catch up hmm.
1: Okay. Yeah, okay. So I take that last one first and uh was that the last one? Yeah. No, no. Um if you if you, um in terms of participation I mean I, I think probably if you look at the gender pay gap that certainly varies across the distribution of income it's very very high at the top level and very low at the bottom level and I think that has quite important implications for thinking about feminist politics and particularly engaging intersection, intersectionally and ensuring that men are involved in those policies as well because certainly at the bottom of the distribution the pay gap is very narrow I'm referring to this country but that trend is fairly similar um, and um, so, you know, to, uh, the, the, and that is precisely the, the outcome of the process, as you suggest, the deterioration of working conditions in general, which is linked to these processes of financialization and globalization. That's why these, these, these um, the working conditions have, have deteriorated uh, to a large extent. And I think, I think that's, you know, to recognize... Um, well to recognise the intersectionality between social class and gender or, or positioning and gender is, is very very important in order to uh, think about how to formulate policies in relation to tax policies in France I'm afraid I, I, don't, I have not studied France <laughs> um, I have no idea do you know? <laughs> well it's a good idea anyway um, <laughs> right um, We can't hear you.
3: <laughs>
1: so it was it was aimed at the very high incomes is is what you're saying in France.
2: Good idea. Um, but it's not working very well. Uh-huh. I think it has got to do with the cultural system. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so he's taxing 1 million and um, and over 75% but this has caused the people who earn that money to flee the country. Um, or change nationality or change banks or whatever, um, which is not ideal because then the system still doesn't work. So the reason why it works in Sweden might be other than just taxing the rich.
1: Okay, okay, so, well, just to to answer that that very briefly first. Um, I mean, the the thing is that uh, uh, looking at Piketty's argument, and I imagine he has quite a lot of knowledge about France, Um, His argument, I mean, he is French. I mean, I mean... the point, the point is always not always to bring in huge amounts of income, but it's to stop the incentive for those high wages. Now, in Europe, you do have a problem because people will move from one country to another. In a large country such as China or in the United States, you've got much more capacity for that because people tend not to move huge distances. Uh, and so what he would advocate in that respect is, is, is a European-wide policy. In his global tax, he is he, very specific about how he thinks that might be implemented successfully. And um, he's thinking of, of countries acting as regions in order to prevent those forms of avoidance. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in Europe, with a um, common labour market, there, there, there is a, a bit of a problem. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, that, that's an argument for having European policies, not for abandoning them in France, I think. Um, Right, okay, so to return to the other policies, you're asking about whether one should um, try to encourage people to engage in the market or try to address social norms within the home. I mean, uh, clearly one should do both. I mean, there's no reason why, you know, one one can't have both kinds of policies there. uh, And I think both are very important. I mean, but but then the question of how you address social norms in the home is, you know, just addressing social norms in, in themselves without trying to think about how people are living their lives I mean how how I mean I, I can remember for example, and despite being a feminist I have to confess I was slightly surprised when I first when I saw the first woman I had seen driving a London bus. You know, I mean, now it's totally normalised, and so things do change over time. But, you know, bringing about those changes does require change in practice. You can't just change things through ideology, trying to shift ideology. It has to, it has to come from changed practices in society, and that generally means having some kind of social policies that mean that people start living their lives slightly differently. And Sue Himmelweit, who couldn't get in tonight, but who was here or did intend to be here, has pointed out that, you know, there's an iteration between behaviour and uh, attitudes in terms of shaping what people uh, do. Uh, so um, I think one could operate both, and I think it's important to operate both simultaneously. Now, I've forgotten one question. No. Uh, whose question have I answered? There was the person in the middle. You've answered hers. Oh, I've answered hers. And, and you've text. answered I don't, Yeah, I've done it. Did I answer that one, Oh, no, about the first-year economics. Am I optimistic? <laughs> um, seeing you all here tonight makes me <laughs> very optimistic.
0: Okay, I think we've got uh, time for one more round. I've is seen a someone with their hand up there. Guy right at the back. Is it going to be hard? Where is the guy? I... In blue oh, tees. yes, okay. The guy at the back,
1: yes. And there's a woman in the front. I there was someone. Yeah, but this is someone there. So that side. Just go straight up that road. Right. Okay. okay. All right. White. So White, we... Sir. Has yeah. the guy at the back got a knife? Who... who, who he, oh, no, oh, should we have that one first and then go, whatever. No, I mean, Obviously, you're in charge. I
0: too.
3: know, but... Yeah, okay, come on, let's get on. Um, if, thank you for taking my question. Uh... My name is Amy. I'm American. Oh, we can't hear you. Oh. Well, that's unusual. Um, <laughs> and um, my question is, is a little bit twofold. The, the first part of my question is, is that initial chart that you showed where health and education were both fairly well developed in terms of women's presence and women's kind of role being valued, but in terms of economics and politics, still lagging. Um, Could you give us a little bit more of a historical perspective on how that has progressed and therefore where you see it going? Because what I concluded from that is that economic and political agency will also kind of follow suit, but perhaps I'm mistaken. You're the expert. And then I have the second part of that question is particularly in pursuit of my optimistic read on that, which may be incorrect or may be correct. Um, Do you think that perhaps bringing value to these professions, what you're advocating is that it would then not be qualification driven, or that it would be qualification driven, and if so, how? Yourself being highly qualified in a lot of very specialized ways, hopefully could speak to that relationship between compensation and qualification. Okay, Okay.
2: let's
0: take brief questions. The gentleman at the back. (laughs) Because we've only got time for
1: yeah,
2: so got, who else did you see? This woman. So um, hi, my too name too is Kressy, and I'm turning white, 18 white, this year. White, currently go, in I mean, year shirt, I'm currently going to um, Dartford Grammar School. I was Can't just wondering, hear. hello? Can't you hear, hear you. Oh, hi, sorry. Um, I was just wondering basically about the number of people going to, into higher education, especially women, is started to like, increase from, let's say, my mother's generation. and What role do you think this is going to play in inequality?
3: Mm.
0: There's someone here.
2: Yes. Perhaps linked to questions asked before, um, I was just... I picked up on the fact that you said um, women earn 75% less than what men earn, in the same profession, with the same amount of education. And I was just wondering why is that? I've heard um, that um, I feel rather pathetic pathetic excuses such as um, maternity leave, but I don't feel like that is enough of an... um, of a reason to pay women less. So I was just wondering your view on that.
1: Um, Okay, so turning first of all to progress in health and education and less so in economics and politics, and will economics and politics not just follow health and education? I don't think so, because I think, um, I mean, um, um, by talking about what the... global, the World Economic Forum's um, gender gap does. is I mean, it's basically measuring gender differences. So what it's saying is that in, in, in different countries in the world, the difference between women and men is no longer as great as it used to be. It doesn't necessarily mean that health is good anywhere. It just means that women and men are the same, which could have your point about downward movement as opposed to upward movement. So it's slightly uh, problematic. But also... Um, Raising health and education can also be very much in economic interests of um, those people who already have. I mean, to have a, you know, one of the first reasons why social policies were introduced in the first place was to prevent the spread of um, infectious diseases, which clearly can affect anyone. Uh, so, you know, having good health care is, is, is in the interests of not only those people who receive it. Likewise with education, you contribute more generally as a consequence of being educated, whereas in the economy and politics, um, they're very much more concerned with questions of power, and, and improving those is a much bigger challenge to the kind of the ways in which um, current structures operate. Um, the idea of sort of waiting and imagining that they will follow... Um, you know, I, I would just requote Keynes's famous uh, statement that in the long run, you know, we're all dead, and um, <laughs> it's much more important to do something in the here and now. I, I, I don't think waiting. I mean, you know, if you were to wait for the pay gap to resolve for part-time workers in the UK, <laughs> we'd be here not only the next century but the one after. Um, so no, I wouldn't wait. Um, in terms of value and qualifications in relation to care. Um, I think one of the key things is, is to value the qualifications that people have. There's an awful lot of tacit skills in caring which have become naturalised and completely unrecognised. Whereas were you to sort of be skilled in a similar kind of way with respect to machinery, it would be valued as skilled. So I think there's one argument for valuing skills that are already present, as well as it's always good to train people to have higher skills. Um, right, so where were we? The question on. Um, oh, God, I got my memory. Um, wh- oh, why is it that you get, even when you have the same level of education, um, why is it that you still get differences between women and men? I mean, there are all sorts of reasons. One is that, you know, the process of segregation tends to be something which is is, is, is reproduced, and even within the same kind of sectors, you get. Um, new kind of divisions emerging. You know, and take a sector like cleaning that's heavily feminized, you find that um, you very quickly get a re-division of labor with men doing the big machines and women doing the dusting. I mean, it's, you know, it's sort of so rife with um, stereotypes there. So that's one thing. Um, you've also got questions that um, pay is often determined through Uh, informal evaluation systems and things like performance related pay and very big subjective elements and people tend to value people very similar to themselves in all sorts of ways and this is how you get this kind of reinforcement of gender norms. Um, The the fact that um, women are now becoming um, as educated in many countries or more educated in some than um, men, will this lead to change? I mean, hopefully, you know, I, don't, I, I never, obviously, speaking as an academic, education is always a good thing. Um, but, you know, the, the statistical data is quite clear. Education is not enough. Um, yeah. Okay, I think co-
0: I've been asked to make an announcement, which I will make before I say thank you to Diane. Uh, and that is we are tri- trialling the live subtitling service that you've seen tonight, In order to get an idea of how many people have found this text helpful and whether it has enhanced your enjoyment of the event, could you please hand back the blank card that you were all given to staff on your way out? Because if you hand it back, this indicates that you did enjoy it. And if you want to fill it in in any way, then uh, you will get regular updates on this. So I would... I would now like to... I, I assume you've all had blank cards, right? No? Well, I'm sorry, I was told to hear you. Okay. Um, so they're being distributed now, by Apparently, okay, they're being distributed now. Uh, in the meanwhile, could I uh, say on behalf of all of us A huge thank you to Diane for actually giving us a really succinct and scintillating account of why gender matters in the analysis of power and inequality. Thank you.